0: I um, I don't know whether it's possible to cultivate a style.
1: body no, is it. precisely what they think they are. Love hmm? Where you find it, where you find it, hmm? where you find it, hmm?
2: where you find it. Maybe in the last moments of my life, moments of my life, I will be curious to know what it means to die.
0: Welcome to Folk Phenomenology. My name is Sam Rocha. This is episode two of season one, featuring special guest Jeannie Gaffigan on the Tragicomic. Today's episode was originally recorded on March 2nd, 2021. Folk Phenomenology is sponsored by Whippenstock Publishers, who published my 2015 book that this podcast takes as its namesake, Folk Phenomenology, education, study, and the human person. Give Us This Day, daily prayer for today's Catholic. The Institute for Christian Socialism, building a movement of the ecumenical Christian left. Solidarity Hall, Eden, plus Utopia. Revelation Cable Company, Vancouver Custom Cables and Pedalboard Solutions. Black Catholic Messenger, an online publication for black Catholics. The Juan Diego Network, Catholic audio for Latinos, and Commonweal Magazine, the leading lay Catholic voice for commentary on religion, politics, and culture. The featured sponsor for today's episode is Where Peter Is. Where Peter Is, and in particular their founder, Mike Lewis, uh, are the ones who introduced me via Twitter to Genie Gaffigan. I don't know exactly and I don't recall the particular details of that interaction, uh, but I do know that um, my introduction to Jeannie uh, was through or within or because of uh, Where Peter Is. Where Peter Is is a fantastic website, it's just wherepeteris.com, uh, that is committed to defending uh, the papacy of Pope Francis. Um, against its critics in case you haven't heard the age-old joke is the Pope Catholic has recently lost its punchline and this odd but nonetheless for Roman Catholics somewhat scandalous situation uh, in particular within the United States is the one that where Peter is was built to respond to, and so um, I'm very happy to have them as a sponsor for the show, and I'm very, very happy to also support them. There was a time when I was the editor of Patheos Catholic that I, in fact, passed on an early. Um, Iteration of the idea that became where Peter is and uh, Mike likes to give me a hard time about that and for good reason Uh, But I'm very happy now that we're working together and I'm especially happy and grateful um, For the connection that was made uh, to Jeannie who you'll hear me in dialogue with today If you would like to support Folk Phenomenology, please share this episode subscribe to the show on your favorite app or platform and maybe even leave us a review or a rating You can also drop a tip into the tip jar. The interview you're about to hear is the very first thing that I recorded for this show. Jeannie was very generous from the very beginning whenever I conceived of this project and she's been so supportive of other projects of mine. But in this one in particular, we had a brief conversation beforehand where we talked a bit about some ideas and I had a sense of direction for the interview. But then whenever the time came to record, I was a full hour late because I made a mistake in my time zone conversions. So I arrived fairly frazzled and Jeannie had a very small window of time to fit me in. And we took off and a lot of the notes I had taken from our conversation to sort of set up the interview really no longer seemed to apply. And I'm so grateful for that because what came out of it and what bloomed from that was an entry into this difficult place of divine comedy, of the tragicomic, of the wit involved in an idea like the motto for the show, Lexit Mundum. Hello. Hi, Jeannie.
2: Hi, Sam.
0: I want to talk about your book. When life gives you pairs. But I, I really would like to maybe back up behind the book. Because the book is autobiographical, right? Yes. Um and so, in some sense, I guess talking about the book and talking about your life is the same conversation, so to speak. I read your book. Actually, I read I read your book after my wife read your book, and I I was so I kind of heard this prequel to your book in um, as my wife talked about it and then I finally got to read it myself. And my reading of it was uh, as a redemption story. Um, I'd, I'd like to know though a little bit about the prequel to the book in the sense of a little bit more about your life and a little bit more about the book and the context of what brought the book into being. And then maybe we can go from there into whether or not my particular reading of your book as a story of redemption uh, makes sense or fits. How does that sound?
2: That sounds great. I mean, I have to tell you that um, the prequel story of uh, like how the book came to be is, um, you know, sort of not, you know, it's kind of in the book, right? But, if you specifically want to know like where I was at like mentally or you know I'm just just be more specific what you're saying in terms of like my life before the book.
0: Yeah so like there's a lot of things to me that um, bring us in some ways into the book because your book biographically you know goes quite a ways back into your youth and coming to New York and stuff but I guess I'm more interested in the the life story that's not necessarily inside the book but that sort of animates the book in particular the kind of I'm trying to get into the folds of like the motivations and desires and impulses that uh brought you to the point of saying you know what I think I want to write a book or create a book
2: okay so um there's kind of like a funny story about the way that the book um came to be um that has a lot to do with what a my problems are as a you know what my pitfalls are as a as a human like what my kind of uh thorn is that i deal with all the time so um i am a very um high achiever like, I don't know where it came from. It's, I've always been like that. And I don't know if it's some kind of um, competition uh, thing or if it's just kind of like, uh, you know, they, people say like, oh, you have a type A personality. Like, you're just born that way, right? You come out, you know, and you start like taking everything out of the cupboards when you're a toddler. And then there's the kid that kind of just, sits there and is docile and I was the one who like dismantled everything so um meanwhile prior to me um you know getting sick which is what what you know uh kind of compelled me to write this story um I was um, just at a point where I had been um, the executive producer of of, an autobiographical television show, um, working at least 80 hours a week on that. Um, And, um, you know, simultaneously trying to like hold my family, my large family of five children together. And um, because the show uh, that I wrote with my husband was about our family um i felt like i was still kind of connected with being like a mother and you know wife um but it came to a pass that i started to have these really like strong feelings about how i was being honest right because a lot of what i feel comedy is is it's honesty hmm. and um So at a certain point, I looked kind of ahead and I thought, you know, if I'm writing autobiographical stories about my family, am I writing all in the past? Because at this point, I'm not experiencing my family on this level anymore because I'm working away from my kids all the time. And the relationship that I have with my husband, although it's always been focused on, you know, how to uh, balance work and we, we started working together before we even like got engaged. So we, work has always been an important bond that we have. Um, and I I even say this in the book is that I'm not sure if I had wound up with somebody else um, that it would have worked as well because mm-hmm. there was always this other thing of work that was like the other uh, woman or the other man, it was like the work. So when you work together, it, it's like he's kind of like that too. So we, we had, Uh, he and I and then we had the work that Mm. we were both contributing to and um, that was that's a really important part of our relationship so anyway um, we you know uh, uh, I don't have to give all the details but essentially we decided not to uh, do the next season of the show and to kind of like end on a high note and move on to other things Mm. so um, what happened was, and what um, you know, I realized a lot um later on in the my recovery from my surgery, that when I started writing the book, is that I just kind of um, lost touch with how to be in touch with uh, my family, how to be um, connected to um, the physical and emotional and spiritual world. And I had all of a sudden this whole, that was uh, about the work that I was Mm -hmm. doing that needed to be filled by something like work. So I went kind of out of the frying pan into the fire and I started working at, I just moved my location. I was now in an office in my home, but I was still like the executive producer of the Gaffigan family, you know, Mm -hmm. I kind of pivoted. So I started taking on all these other projects feeling free because I felt kind of like I was trapped in this work environment, um, even though I loved it, it was not allowing me to be, uh, you know, free to be, uh, you know, a real person. Right? When you're, you're you're writing about yourself as a real person, there's this weird disconnect all of a sudden that happens where you're like, wait, am I writing a reality now? Because I'm not actually having the experiences with my actual children that compelled me to write this story so it's almost like i got into this weird trap um and when i was out of that obligation i just filled it with other obligations and i Mm. so i lost touch with so this is i know this is very like esoteric like type um
0: no i actually i relate to this um almost too much you could say i mean i think there's there's a kind of road being paved here just to to not (laughs) to not make you feel like this is like you're the only one on the spot like you know over the last uh, eight years I recently tweeted about this you know my 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 progress into the Academy uh, especially my my PhD which I did in three years which was like a flash I didn't really know it was ahead of me, but I I was thrown into the academic job market. Since I'm not the product of a particularly academic or pedigreed background or family, you know, everything was new and everything was learning on the fly. And by the time I reached my first tenure track position, my work essentially had really, I mean, I kind of almost lost my family in almost, you could say, like a, like a literal way. And so my first reform was that I can't just like change. I can't just like, you know, well, for one, I can't stop the work. <laughs> um, uh, it's our daily bread and, and other things. Um, so I said, right. Um, but I, I said, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to stay home a lot. And do a lot of my work at home even obstinately work at home and for a long time all i all i did to change my life was to just be at home a lot which actually in some sense made our lives harder because i didn't know how to be at home i didn't know how to be a member of the family really Um, and it's only been recently that now like eight years later that i've been finally realizing that you know what just being around all the time isn't actually value added necessarily? You got to do things and 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 move from quantity to quality. You got to move from, you know, just time clocked in the pre- on the premises to actual quality time and stuff like that. So, no, what you said there for, it really hit me actually personally, um, in terms of a, I guess my attempt at a redemption story, which is still ongoing. I'm not. I'm nowhere close. I don't know if you if that. You said it was esoteric. I said, no, I, I heard it this way. Do you hear it the way I'm hearing it?
2: Well, yeah, and I think that I if I didn't feel like it, like this uh, kind of dynamic had value to a lot of people, I wouldn't, you know, it would just be this personal thing because I'm, you know, I could very easily say, well, I'm so niche. I'm you know married to a comedian, I have this very uh, weird life and I can't uh, relate to anybody.
0: Well, but, let's talk about so, that though. Because cause there's obviously, like, that's that's kind of the elephant in the room, is that, like, wh- whenever, um, and I've actually seen it in people's responses, even, like, look, I'm going to confess to you. Like, you know, I've gotten messages from, you know, my sister, of, like, oh, my gosh, you are totally talking to Jeannie Gaffigan on Twitter right now. That's crazy, right? And, like, I know that's kind of, like, it sounds strange, but it is a part of the, I think what I'm calling the elephant in the room, which is like, you know, you do have an exceptional, in the sense of the exception, right? You have this, this, this different life, you know, when you're talking about your work with your husband, it's Jim Gaffigan, who is to you, my husband, my beloved, but to the people on the other side of the, um, of the sound, it's like a, you know the whole celebrity thing. How do you think through that? Because you know, in some ways, I think as an academic, we feel and I feel like this is a a weird life, a different life, a bit avant-garde, maybe. Uh, but but I but I don't think I can even begin to fathom your side of that, right?
2: Well, I think that the reason that I brought it up as the elephant in the room is that. I could easily just be like, well, nobody can relate to me, but I feel that there's this this part of me that wants to, um, you know, express that I we we are humans. Like we, even if your, you know, uh, your thing is your uh, PhD and my thing was a TV show, it creates this kind of way that we are dealing with our lives that we can. Find truth in, and we can find healing in, right? By mm-hmm. by, that's what what all these like. If if you are in, let's say, Alcoholics Anonymous, you're going into a room with a bunch of people who are completely different. Like one guy might be, you know, uh, divorced, or you know, or someone might be homeless, or someone might be, um, you know, totally different. One might be rich, one might be poor, but we're all human, and and that group has this special way of uh, helping each other. And so by me bringing it up, I'm just saying I could have just said, well, literally nobody would be able to relate to any of these feelings, so I'm not gonna tell my story. But at the same time, when I, well, I'll get to like how that figured into when I sat down and wrote a book, how that figured in later. But right now, what I'm saying is that I found things about myself that I feel like I've observed in other people, I've observed a lot in other women, and it doesn't mean, you know, white women who, you know, are exactly like me, who have five kids and married to a comedian who's famous. You know, it's like, that's, that's not the the niche that I'm speaking to. I'm talking to, like, I'm trying to be as universal as I can. It's just that this is the way that it manifests in my life. And in your life, it's different. But, There's the same thing, so it's not only that I was um, like physically, like you're talking about, like you made an effort, you had to make an effort to go. Okay, I'm gonna go, you know, shoot some baskets with my boy and be a dad, be there for him. But if you're you're physically there, but you're like, oh my gosh, I'm thinking about this, you know, thing, and let me just go check Twitter and all this stuff. That's a spiritual and emotional blockade that you might as well be at the office or you might Mm -hmm. as well be away um so it's a it's something that i didn't um really realize uh after i left that job Mm -hmm. to experience my family more i didn't make that other step right Mm -hmm. this is where i am right now before i start writing the book right so basically because um, I'm constantly um, saying yes to things that I don't have time for, um, which is another problem I have. I um, was in a a situation where, because I had been, prior to the Jim Gaffigan show, I had been a much more behind the scenes uh, producer. I was a producer, but I was producing comedy tours and I wasn't the one on stage, right? So um, in this way, one of the characters on the show, although she was portrayed by an actress, not me, was um, Jeannie Gaffigan. So Jeannie Gaffigan became a thing, right? So when the show ended, I had written two books as a story editor that were from Jim's point of view. Hmm. That is fat and food to love story. And both of them on uh, New York Times bestsellers, both of them funny from a dad, you know, kind of that dark humor of the dad being mm-hmm. like, you know, I I wanted, but, but my happiest times with my kids are away from my kids. Like that's kind of his um, tongue in cheek kind so of. So this is
0: not part. your first book.
2: Well, it was the first book in my voice. Mm-hmm. So, but prior to that, um, I had worked with, uh, you know, in the literary world. So I had, I, you know, had a book agent, all this stuff. So, um, and this is like a good friend of mine. So anyway, he started talking about uh, a book and whether it was going to be a, a, another Genie and Jim book, or maybe, you know, a more of a balance, not Jim book, but like a Genie and Jim book. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I had this concept Because one of the things that was very uh, 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 present all the time is people would say, Okay, now they knew I was a hands on mom, that I didn't have like, you know, everyone else doing things and that I was, you know, slapping my kids all over the universe. So I have this very, I was brought up in a very practical like uh didn't you know i think recently you did a twitter post about what was the first time on a plane yeah you know i realized like i really didn't go anywhere until i was like 30. i didn't go anywhere i mean i went to florida in a car you know it was uh my grandparents lived there we drive all night i mean it was like in a big van with nine kids it was a very different life than me you know being you know this kind of you know, world traveler but um anyway but when i would go i would have to pack five kids right mm-hmm. and people are like how and then so i was like i have this whole weight because i also struggle with like attention deficit disorder which is undiagnosed in me but now that i have a couple kids that have a diagnosed adhd i recognize oh that's what was wrong with me when i was uh-huh. a kid right yeah. so I've, I, for myself, uh, you know, to get through life and to get through school, I had to find ways to navigate my attention problem or my hyperactivity problem. So I have this whole system of doing things. And it was kind of inspirational to some other mothers of big families and, you know, people who were a little overwhelmed by organizing. Mm. So I started to write this book that I, we've never got a title for it because that's coming up in what I'm telling you mm-hmm. is I um, called it the laundry room book because I believe that the laundry room, even if it's a closet where you sort clothes, is like the heart of the, of the operations. It's like the command central because that's where, I mean, it's this whole concept I have about how, laundry when you have a big family can easily take over your life it's hmm. like but i mean i know that you're an academic and you're probably like what is she talking about but it's like this is you know i kind of broke down the whole and laundry We have laundry
0: thing. in our house too
2: <laughs> no and like i relate it to like how it applies to like letting your emails pile up or your bills pile up hmm. you know it's a way to kind of look at something and say okay i'm going to divide and conquer right so um this kind of concept i had for a book became like what if it was like i don't know if you've ever seen any of like amy sedaris she's a comedian and an author and she writes these books that are kind of like a cross between a coffee table book and a book but there's a lot of graphics in them and there's a lot of pictures and they're kind of like producing a movie right sure. there's there's you know obviously a stylist and there's wardrobe and there's these different characters that so she wrote a book about crafting and she wrote a book about giving a party and they're mm. very funny mm. so i kind of saw it having a lot of graphics like people love pictures and graphics in sure. comedy books so i'm working on this project this is like one of the many things that i'm doing at this point in the book where it's where I kind of like start off when I go back um, after I introduce what this book is going to be about. This is When Life Gives repairs. the book that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And um, this is where kind of the book starts. This is where I'm at. So this autobiographical little taste of only Sam is hearing this exact story that's happened. Yes. so meanwhile all this stuff happens to me which is in the book where i you know almost die i am separated from my kids i have like um some of the most like uh physically agonizing experiences of my life i i have a vision of like what i believe to be hell
1: mm-hmm. when i'm
2: i mean it's like all these really dark things are happening to me so jumping way ahead i start to um recover at home now i have machines at home i have a a nurse i have you know i'm like in a hospital but i'm in my home because at the at a certain point they're like get her out of the hospital because she's just going to keep getting sicker with all these germs Mm -hmm. flying around right so um essentially people start you know can i could you put me on the phone with your mom? Like how I, I'm able to like croak out some words. And so Simon, who is my book agent calls me as a friend. Right. Okay. And they're like, Simon is on the phone and I'm like, Simon. And so I start telling him, I'm, I, I gotta get back to work on that book. Right.
0: The laundry book.
2: He, the laundry room book. And he's like, Genie, there's no laundry room book right now. He's like, it's, it's like the book. He's like people, you know, if you're gonna tell a story, what what happened to you? What what happened to you? What what's going on? Like no one knew what happened. They just because we were very private until I came home, and then oh, people, like, I came home. So basically, he posted it on Instagram that I was like a, a picture of me, my, um, Jeannie's home, thank God or whatever, right? And there was the you know IV and the machine, and everyone's like what so it started all these people calling and you know everything like that so but because of who i am and even after i went through all that stuff i still was like i i uh i gotta turn in my paper you know what i mean i was like i i can't you know i still felt like i had to Mm. i was on the clock you know yeah and um so he was kind of like you know and the, I was a, like almost argumentative I was like I know I, I'm going to do that i got to get that done because I started it and I can't just abandon this project and I was like what if there's like a chapter about oh then I had a brain tumor like I was still trying to <laughs> put mold in the um, you know trying to force that book to be done yeah. because it started it sure. and that's been so obsessive yeah 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 and um so basically when people that's the funny story and then i realized that i really didn't realize what happened because it happened so fast it wasn't like when i was in it i was just in the foxhole right yeah i was surviving yeah and so i didn't have a lot of chance uh so i had all these encounters with myself with god with jim and they were just these things that were happening. And I needed to, because I, no, I had I was traumatized. Sure. I needed to figure out what happened. And so as I recovered, I started to, you know, make notes. Like, in, you know, a lot of times, like if you uh, feel like something bad is gonna happen or you might die or whatever, a lot of people want to write down what, what's going on because or they do a video interview of themselves and say Mm. um hey to my baby son i just got diagnosed with cancer or whatever sure sure sure. what is what am i going to leave on this earth Mm -hmm. so there was that motivation and also so it was for myself the way that a lot of the book reads is kind of like a you know a diary right this is me i'm not shakespeare i'm not you know trying to audition for anything it's just like it's. I don't know if this is going to go anywhere but this is what I'm writing Mm -hmm. as I um, and just to get back to what one of the things just because I don't want to just go on and on and not address this about the um, elephant in the room that you're talking about (laughs) like I have to be very um, aware that I uh, am this person who is kind of you know would never no one probably would have cared if my husband was a comedian. like no one would have wanted to read the book my i I don't think I think people have crises all the time and want to read a book sure. and people and the agents like, yeah, we have sixteen brain tumor books on the pre- You know, so I'm very blessed and lucky that I was able to tell my story and that's connected.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And so I have to address that. Sure. But at the same time, there are things that I went through that are just absolutely universal in terms of suffering and that taught me things about myself and taught me things about the world that were really um, great lessons for me to sort of start a journey. Mm -hmm. So I... In no way do I want anyone who reads the book to think like, oh, she's got it all figured out. She's done. Well, good thing got that suffering over with. Now I'm good, right? Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, this is a whole, uh, you know, w- way of 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 just like the the laundry, right? Mm-hmm. The jack of laundry. It's like life is like a big pile of dirty laundry. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but it's like also there's a meteor shower. And there might be a big huge meteor that like hits the house right next door to you and some of your house gets damaged and you're like whoa that was a close one good thing I'll never get hit with the meteor but it's like you know we can either do that and say I'm gonna move over there and I'm gonna make sure that I'm not uh, gonna suffer and make sure my kids aren't gonna suffer and I'm gonna do everything I can to live my life to avoid suffering yeah. And I think that is one of the most dangerous things that anyone can do is to think that they're not going to have suffering in their life and right. actually and I'm just going to say this one of the things that popped into my head some of the most uh, together and grounded people that I have ever met in my entire life suffered when they were younger sure. and they have a different like perspective than people who um, you know haven't gone through anything yet so i know that sounds like a really easy thing but people think of oh people who had this this trauma in their young adulthood or their childhood like they must be really messed up sure and it's like no they're not like in my experience they're not messed up they're like our leaders
0: sure i mean i think a lot about the relationship for instance between suffering and education um and you know the the stories of people who are educated in some sense through a pedagogy of suffering are, and in this case, by the way, there's there's like there's the very particular educational institution of the prison. Uh, so we have these, you know, Malcolm X, for instance, you know, and and many others uh, who write from prisons or experience a kind of education. Um, but it's paradoxical, right? Because if you take it too far in the other direction, you can forget that there's a lot of people who never recover from their education, you know, fr- from the pedagogy of suffering. Um, but I, I agree with you, though, that, that um, there is something formative about suffering that we ignore at our peril and definitely run away from at our peril, right? Um, I mean, the whole meteor shower thing that, that really, I think that's definitely true. I think what's cool about your, your book is that, um, the comedy and the humor is a little bit edgy. It's a little bit dark because it's premised on very, a very universal human experience of, in this case, very physical suffering. I mean, the reputation at least of gaffigan humor sometimes is typecast as you know clean humor or humor that sort of in some sense lacks an edge of a kind whereas your book to me i thought it was edgy actually like i um and i have to say it was kind of it was it was surprising in a good way to me um uh i don't know what you think of that though
2: no i mean i do think that um the gaffigan comedy is edgy i think that because it's not uh you know, overly sexual and it's sure. not it's not filled with you know the f-bomb constantly um i think that people just go oh it's clean mm-hmm. but if you ever hear about um like if some like just some of this stuff might be like you know all about like how you know you might just say oh it's uh you know, hot pockets cause people to have have diarrhea. Like that's like the most, the most lowbrow, you know, uh, the dirtiest joke, right? Mm -hmm. But when I hear some of the material, it's pretty heavy. Like the McDonald's uh, material about how, um, you know, I don't know if you know the premise of the McDonald's joke, but the McDonald's joke is that like, if when people are like, you shouldn't eat McDonald's because, you know, it's bad for you, right? And right. Jim is talking about how everyone has their own McDonald's though. So you can judge my McDonald's, but everyone has their own McDonald's. Sure. So, um, it applies to really dark stuff. What What's your McDonald's? Like, so it starts off very, uh, uh, approachable and you know we do see a lot of you know people in their 40s in the audience that have like their 14 year old because it's safe and that's a wonderful thing that people mm-hmm. can enjoy mm-hmm. this. but you know the dad might get it on a different level than the kid gets it right sure because sure. um i i do feel that there's an edge and i think that there is a little bit of a darkness to the way that everything um, in the comedy has kind of a, like I I know Jim, so I do know like personal Jim and I know on stage Jim and Mm. I, so it's very difficult for me not to know the the roots of some of these jokes because Jim takes dark uh, concepts and makes them silly. Sure, but there's that doesn't get rid of the darkness. Sure. But at the same time, it helps us cope. So, one of the things that I talked about in the book, um, which is really dark, even though it's it, w- it was all a gem, was the um, you know the the pig tube that I had to be fed through. Yeah. Right. So that's pretty dark. You got a surgery to implant a hose into your stomach. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is the better case. The better case is being on the hose, because if you're not on the hose, you have the nasal gastric tube, which is a, you know, it's bad. I don't need to break it down because
0: yeah, I'd prefer not to break it down.
2: (laughs) So, but the whole thing is, is that the way the gym made this horrifying thing to me made it funny and made it beautiful,
1: Mm.
2: you know? And also the universe, the force, was also with us in that too, because who knew that there was an entire community of peg-fed people who never were going to get their swallow back, Mm. right? Mm. And all of a sudden they were like writing letters, like, thank you for normalizing this experience Wow. And, you know, because so so, just to for people who haven't read the book or know what I'm talking about. I for Sam's sake, I'm not going to go into any more physical details. Thank you. I've already said what it is. So to me, it was like I all I wanted to do was have food normally, eat food. I didn't care if it was applesauce, anything. I just wanted to swallow something. But I couldn't because uh, I could, it, it would go into my lung. But anyway, yeah. sorry, Sam. Um, trigger warning, Sam. Thanks. I'm talking about swallowing food.
0: You put the trigger um, warning at the other side, but it, it's yeah. okay.
2: Yeah. I'm going to trigger warnings all the time just in case. Really, like, <laughs> so, anyway, long story short, Jim, when he, when I first uh, was trying this method, it's uh i'm trying not to be too graphic but basically you have to mix a form like a baby formula to to put it in a thing to make it go into the stomach so jim decided to make it like a cooking show where he was like you know shaking the formula like he was like tom cruise and the movie cocktail and mm-hmm. he was lighting a candle to make it more romantic and if you happen to be visiting that day you were a guest on the show and he would say um you know today on uh you know feeding frenzy was named the show he's like today i'm feeding frenzy i'm going to peg my wife now i don't know what that means but apparently it's something really dirty yep. and so people would come over and say and he'd say hey would you like to peg my wife it was a thing right so um and i when i this is still on youtube by the way so when you see this show i'm like i am I'm like 90 pounds. I'm like I'm like a skeleton, oh. and it's like he is making this amazing like way to cope. So he's using his ability to be funny um, about something that really is not funny at all, mm-hmm. right? And at that time, remember, we didn't know if I was going to ever be able to eat like a normal person, right? Mm-hmm. And there's many, many people who, who never can. Hmm. And um, so I'm always aware of that, just like I'm always aware that I'm I'm privileged in sure. every way in my life. I am privileged. Um, and my experience, if I was like a person of color or a, if I was a black woman or whatever, could have been completely different when mm-hmm. I went to the hospital. Sure. Um, but so I'm always aware of that. But I'm saying this is what happened to me. Um, and in, I want to be really clear with you, Sam, that when I have the, my miracle story of getting into that brain surgeon's office who doesn't like see patients, like it's yeah, not yeah. like the head of neurosurgery, yeah. um, it was, there was no, I showed my, my card as a, you know, famous person or whatever. There was absolutely no way, no one, I didn't show an ID, no one knew sure. who I was, I didn't say my name. It was like this kind of miracle story that I describe in the book. But I will never, uh, I, you know, I didn't address this in the book, but I'm very aware right now that had I been a different uh, colored skin person, mm-hmm. I don't know if I could have just walked into the hospital. So let me just sure. sure, sure, sure. I'm very well aware that I'm very, uh, I was, there were things that were working in my favor, right? In yeah. All the miracle stories that I say.
0: Well, I think the edginess and the, the way in which humor functions in your book is, 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 you know, it's actually pretty complex whenever you think about it in, in terms of, I'm sorry to, to like hit the gas pedal here theologically, but I think about the cross, right? Um, and there's this idea of like the scandal of the cross in Paul. And usually I think whenever we whenever that scandal is invoked, it tends to draw one's mind to kind of a sense of tragedy. The tragic. Uh, and the tragic has the absurd. There's like there's a lot of layers to the to the to the to the tragic in, in literature in, in our imaginations. But I always find that I struggle personally with the comic. And I think ultimately though, comedy has a place, um, like, there's, like, this is, this, my students are going to love this and I'm going to make a fool out of myself, but sometimes when I teach, I use biblical references that students don't have to share, because I teach at a secular university at UBC, and so I'll quickly say, oh, don't worry, I'll explain this parable, or I'll explain the story, and I'll give them my, like, 30-second version, and I- I'm not a comedian by any means but for whatever reason the irreverence and the slapdash version and the the you know at the i love at the end of of the gospels when jesus is kind of just showing up places after he's been resurrected and i call it the peekaboo jesus because on the road to emmaus he's like hi and then he disappears and then they run to jerusalem and then they're like we saw jesus and jesus shows up peekaboo and everyone's scared and they're like he's a ghost he's like i'm not a ghost i'll eat something like i'll do that thing and my students laugh hysterically, because the ones who know the stories are like, this is not the Bible. This is ridiculous. Like, Sam got basically a few things right, but it's mostly just crazy, and the people who don't know it find it really funny, and they're like, wow, I I should read the Bible because it's probably funny, and they're disappointed, of course, when they go and they find out that it's not that funny. What I'm trying to get at is, though, that there is, I think, maybe a place in our understanding of the world, of our understanding of Scripture, of our making sense of our lives. Where the comic can intervene within the tragic in a way, um, and and I haven't quite thought about that very much. But you talking about it here, and having read the book, so knowing some of the context a bit, that's that's that hits me as 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 true. I guess I don't know if that makes sense to you, or if you want to talk about the cross and all of this or not.
2: Well, I mean, I can I can talk about the cross and all of this, but I don't know in the context of the the, the, the comedy. But um, the comedy and the sort of spiritual for me hmm. in before this journey even sort of got off the ground, like because I the fear of um, the fear of going into something like this and how quickly I was I had to process it in retrospect, was really funny, right? Mm. And there were certain moments where um, it occurred to me in the moment. Mm. So, for instance, um, prior to me going into surgery, and it was actually on Good Friday, so there's something kind of funny about that. Yeah, um, I was scanned for, you know, a lot of times when you have these really, like, these days, like, surgery has all this, like, it looks like you're in like some kind of elaborate computer game. Like there's so much, so many computers involved in surgery.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: one of the things just like, um, you know, if you're in a, uh, a a film that has a lot of um, virtual reality in it, you have to put on like a suit and go in a pod and there's all these lights and they take pictures of every inch of your body. So then you can become like the, the avatar guy or whatever. And mm-hmm. that's kind of you, right? So in the same way, the, they do that to your body and all your organs before you go into surgery. So they literally can render a 3D image of your body that is a virtual Sam, that's a virtual genie. That's Sam's heart, we know, mm-hmm. it, and it, it's exactly like your actual body. Mm-hmm. So that's the way that they are able to, when they're operating, they can like remove all your you know vascular system and just mm-hmm. see the you know they just make that disappear so they're like, oh there it is it was under that vein or whatever sure. so it's like so there is something really funny about that a really unfunny thing so in the moment though when i was in the scan machines when i was in the mris like that is a terrifying experience it's mm-hmm. it's just like especially if you um you know have any fear of close spaces or, you know, sure. and then you have to deal with the fact that, you know, if you move, they have to start over and it's really long and you have this thing. And so during those long sessions in there, I could not help but do two things. One was pray, right? But hmm. it was like, the only thing I can do right now is pray. I can I can't do anything. Right, Mm -hmm. So that made me very aware that like, if I didn't have that belief, there's a spiritual life that I would just be in there by myself and it would be like the worst thing ever. It would be nothing. Mm -hmm. Second thing I had to do was find the humor in the situation. Mm -hmm. And that those two things allowed me to survive moment by moment without going crazy. Or um, you know, having like a panic attack physically. So, in retrospect, seeing how spirituality and humor were my tools, mm-hmm. that and it can't only be unique to me because I believe that you know, if that you know, God wants us to have humor, right? He wants us to be funny. So, sure. So I feel that. Even though your humor and your peek Jesus is different <laughs> oh, than my, you know, experience of the, uh, you know, horned honking in my ear, in mm-hmm. my good ear, you know, ironically, I was like, I was like, really, the horns in my good ear can't can't be in my deaf ear. Like, there's something funny about that. Even though it's not funny that you're in an MRI and you're going deaf in the ear because there's a huge tumor on your, you know, sure. auditory canal. Sure. That's not funny, but in order for me to kind of experience the reality of it, Mm -hmm. it was so horrible that I had to go there.
0: No, I think, I think, I mean, I know I'm, I'm off. I'm saying the kind of meta thing to the listener now, but I've strayed pretty far from the earliest notes here, but, but I, I'm, I think, and I'm not saying that you're not saying this explicitly enough, But I think there's something really, really profound that plums to a place about the way at least I've understood Christianity where, so in in Chesterton's orthodoxy, he basically kind of gives his apologia or his kind of, uh, his argument for why he's chosen Christianity. And it's in some sense a a, a triumphalist account of why Christianity of all the religions is the religion for him, right? but interestingly, he says there's only one religion, he claims, in which God seemed for an instant to be an atheist, which happens on the cross. Um, and 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 this moment in Chesterton, that, where he's recalling Christ declaring his own isolation, he says only one divinity ever uttered their isolation. Um, it, it's actually, to me, I always thought of that as saying like, I don't know that there was something very profound in a kind of tragic sense of like the death of God and all this stuff. But now you're actually helping me realize that other religions have plenty of tragedies within their myths and stories and and tales and wisdom traditions. Uh, but I think what stands out about this whole God, for an instance, seeming to be an atheist, is that in some level it's actually kind of funny. Like it's it's a it's there's a wit. I think, that Chesterton finds in Christianity. Now, I think whenever we actually go into like, especially Hebrew scripture and the Old Testament, and we read it alongside other great stories of great floods and stuff, you find out that actually there's a lot to laugh about in origin stories, right, and stuff like that. But, you know, it's not something that literally until this interview, this moment right now, speaking with you, that I've quite been able to capture in my mind's eye uh, despite all the reading and all the kind of homework doing and stuff so I'm just um, I'm a bit stunned to be honest by that insight because if you start with when life gives you pears I wouldn't have expected to have a deeper appreciation of not only Chesterton but really kind of like the 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 the, the core wit of religion and religious experience but that's what you gave me
2: but that's also because that's you because you, you know what i'm saying like i it wasn't like i planned that you know what i'm saying like that's a really great a uh, wonderful feedback but like that is you're educating me on that so it's like mm. that's amazing because i think that the irony of the atheist moment on the cross is like i mean it, uh, it's irony is and wit you know, it's like those kind of moments that makes things more true, right? Mm-hmm. It makes things more interesting.
0: Well, that's the passion.
2: Yeah.
0: You know the uh, the comedy of the passion. It's not something, again, that I that I that I spend a lot of time in contemplation about. But I tell you what, I'm gonna have one heck of a Good Friday this year
2: thanks to this <laughs> well you know i think that it's also people are you know you have to experience these things for yourself and share them but be aware mm-hmm. that people aren't going to want to hear funny and good friday in the same sentence and i'm telling you even though you're you uh, rightly said you know the african comedy is clean or whatever like if you even stay jesus or anything like that even if you are a believer and you think something's funny you make an observation like Mm -hmm. this there are going to be people who are offended so people who who won't even go to the point of like understanding that moment of wit that deepens a moment for you Mm -hmm. that makes more real and also it's Jesus' humanity right Mm -hmm. in that moment and and what it can teach us about our humanness and our spiritual life, mm-hmm. when the son of God Himself, right? It's mm-hmm. just if it, there's just so much more, it's so it's so much deeper to go into it. If you look at things as not like, oh, it's so tragic that this happened, that there's this rich, um, you know, lesson and this yeah. this rich understanding that we can learn by doing things like that. And so I I I keep. Uh, Wanting wanted to tell this joke that Jim uh, has where he is talking about Jesus and he says, um, you know, we all know Jesus was a carpenter, but do you think he was a good carpenter? I mean, do you think it was a <laughs> kind of like? Well, it's a good thing that the science thing worked out because he built a shed for my cousin.
0: Do you know what's funny about this? Sorry to interrupt your joke, but the the church fathers asked these kinds of very ridiculous questions. Like, a question was like, did Jesus use the bathroom? Like, did he like actually like poop? Like, that was an actual question on the minds of the early church fathers. So, again, uh, carry on with the joke. But this joke for me is a very patristic sounding joke.
1: Yeah. The,
2: the joke's over. But the point is, like, those the things are, they are about us. Mm-hmm. It, uh, they're about humans. Humans are like, even with, you know, it's just like, um, you know, oh, uh, let's say you're you become like this leading podcast in the world i'm just like saying like all of a sudden sam he's the the podcast guy he everyone is in love with his podcast and then someone's like you know he used to be a professor of uh they're like oh was he he did he have to go that because the professor thing didn't work out like we're always trying to like criticize each other and Mm trying to undermine a success and all this stuff so when people are so literal and they take everything so literally, and they're saying this is uh, black and white, the the uh, crucifixion is is tr- tragic, and that's it, and that's all you can do, mm-hmm. you're missing out on so much, and also you, you're taking the literal reading, you're not understanding what can I learn about myself, what can I learn about suffering, what can I learn about comedy, what can I, how can I grow in this moment, yeah. and so um, they just hear like. Wait, why are you talking about why are you making jokes about Jesus? That's mm-hmm. blasphemous. And it's mm-hmm. like, no, I'm not making a joke about Jesus. I am making a joke about myself and about humanity and about, you know, you know, it's like maybe it was uh, oh, did you hear Jim start out working in advertising? Well it's a good thing that comedy thing worked out because he was terrible at advertising. You know? <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. like that he just puts Jesus in it and it just heightens the whole experience because it brings all this other stuff into it too. So absolutely i think that that um you know this kind of like mixing your suffering with humanity and comedy and every uh emotion it's like listen we can look at every single human tragedy ever Mm -hmm. and i guarantee you that someone wrote a joke about it maybe not on the first day yeah. Yeah, yeah but i mean
0: No, there's some really good, I mean, culturally speaking, I can't even bring myself to publicly repeat the joke that a certain philosopher, Slavoj Žižek, makes about Eastern Europeans and the Balkans and the kinds of humor they use to essentially, you know, they say after tragedy farce, right? He talks about the, the the, he gives specifics and one of them is like so... I mean, it's really dark. One one thing culturally is that a few, quite a few years ago now, I guess maybe seven or eight years now ago, there were 43 teachers abducted from a normal school in Mexico in Ayotzinapa, and I was asked by the Philosophy of Education Society to write in Spanish a kind of um, a statement responding to that because we had been asked by an organization. And to make a long story short. There was something a bit off about the, the English press reporting about this event and I couldn't quite tell what it was. So I just went to YouTube to watch kind of TV reporters talk about it. And the first TV reporter I found said in Spanish equivalent, Look, we live in Mexico. Bad things are happening like all the time. Like there's something bad happening outside of this station right now. So I know me telling you there's bad news is not a big deal. But guess what? even for mexico what i'm about to tell you this is even bad for us and he just breaks out laughing right and again like it's awkward for someone sitting in canada or in new york to laugh too hard at that right because that but the moment he hit that note of wit he the details he gave were far richer. And what I realized was that within the Ayotzinapa teachers' tragedy, they resented the way in which the English and, and the global press said that these teachers were dead. Because even though that they were probably murdered, they had a saying that they were seeds. No sabían que éramos semillas, that we were seeds. And this poetics of the seed and the ground that would grow was laced with a whole entire set of references biblical christian catholic marxist secular i mean the whole nine yards and that's where i found my treasure trove and that's where i found um, a more authentic expression of this real human tragedy but it had to be in some sense opened up through a comic you know rendition just to get people's attention practically but also i think it kind of relax me enough to get into that place of complexity and all those things. So, you know, I think, I think there's deep truth here. I think it's spiritually true. I think it's theologically true. I think it's true for Christians. I also think, though, it gets at something deep in the human condition and, and deep into our cultural and social ways of life. You know, if we had more time, we could go into even like a cultural critique of where this is missing or stuff like that. But gosh. Any, I'll give you the last word because I just talked a lot there about Ayotzinapa. Uh, But this is what you've done uh, to me. You've just set my mind in 50 different directions.
2: I don't know, Sam. I think we need to do a part two. Um, Yeah, I just want to say that like, I am um, just sort of beginning this sort of journey into how all, in all ways that are suffering, can inform us to be better at the next time we suffer, right? Mm. And so um, it was very uh, unbelievable for me that this sort of pandemic thing happening, this little pandemic that we haven't brought up, was like, (laughs) I was like, oh, okay. So, okay, bring this one on. I, I remember this. Like, yeah. there was something familiar about it. Because I was like, oh, wait. So, we we don't know what's going to happen. We uh, don't know if we're going to live or die. There's, you know, all this crisis going on. And there was something like, I mean, yeah, I'm suffering. I'm suffering right now. My husband is gone for three months. I have literally no idea how I'm going to hold up the family by myself. Hmm. Um, but there's a... there's every person's story of suffering has this redemptive quality to it and we have to just keep remembering that we can't even though it's easier for me to say because here i am doing great Mm -hmm. there is a there was a lot of time where i didn't think i was going to come out of it and those were the times that were most valuable for me Mm -hmm. and i also realized that i needed to talk about it and discuss it because if i didn't get out of it that uh knowledge would be the fruit of that suffering that someone Mm -hmm. else could take so um i could go on and on about
0: well no you brought us back around to to redemption which is where we started uh thank you so so much for your time and for this conversation i hope uh I hope it was as as meaningful and rich to you as it certainly was for me. I'm going to have to go for a walk now.
2: Well, you know what? I'm going to have to go to my next appointment and suffer.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Folk Phenomenology Season 1. And special thanks to Jeanie Gaffigan. I would like to again thank my sponsors as well. Whip and Stock Publishers, Give Us This Day, The Institute for Christian Socialism, Solidarity Hall, Revelation Cable Company, Black Catholic Messenger, Where Peter Is, our special and s- featured sponsor today, The Juan Diego Network, and also Commonweal Magazine. The friends of the show, who are so important really uh, to me to have friends and to show that this show is not uh, something that appears alone but is something that arrives uh, with supporters like our sponsors but also in community like these friends are The Commonweal Podcast, The Gloria Purvis Show, Disinherited Podcast, Davud Gosley, Up Too Late with Teresa Zoe Williams, Conversation on Tap, Saintly Witnesses, Kinder Conservative, The Show, Gregory B. Sadler, and Kush Classics. Make sure to check out the show notes for links to all of these wonderful friends and also to the wonderful and generous sponsors of Folk Phenomenology. And if you'd like to uh, show your appreciation for this work and for today's episode, you can also uh, drop in something into the tip jar. All tips that I collect during season one uh, will be saved to uh, jumpstart the uh, funding of season two that I will begin working on just as soon as this season is over. In the immediate present, though, the most important thing that I implore you to do is to just share this episode, uh, share what you liked. Share what you didn't like, um, but help us amplifying the show. We're still getting off the ground. Make sure that you're subscribed to the show on your favorite app or platform. Um, if you're using social media, be sure to tag Folk Phenomenology or me uh, personally, and I'll try to make sure to uh, to reamplify uh, those amplifications. Um, yeah, just... Help us out as much as, as much as you can and as much as you'd like. Um, every little bit really counts. This isn't uh, a big staff <laughs> uh, for this show, uh, but I count on a great deal of friends, as I've said, and sponsors. And truly, I'm counting on you uh, as listeners to uh, get this off the ground. And I thank you in advance for all of your help. Next week, we have another exciting interview to share, um, this time with Kaya Oaks, a writer, a teacher of writing at UC Berkeley, and an author with a new book coming out this fall titled The Defiant Middle, How Women Claim Life's In-Betweens to Remake the World. We will talk about all those things, including the fact that she was also someone who I reached out to and asked to critically read uh, a pre-publication manuscript of folk phenomenology and she uh, did so and gave me some really astute and truly formative constructive criticism and so in this interview we talk a bit about some of that criticism we get into some of the technical Uh, basics of writing and composition and also talk a bit about sort of what it means to publish today in particular to publish and communicate with different kinds of audiences Uh, she supplies I think some fantastic well-placed but very sharp uh, criticism uh, directed at academic writing or the conventions of academic writing today Uh, All of this and more in next week's interview. Make sure that you uh, don't miss out on that. Folk Phenomenology is written, hosted, recorded, and produced by me, Sam Rocha. You can find more of my work at samrocha.com. Until next week, go out and love the world. Delexi mundum.
2: What is interesting to me, really interesting, and I can't define it, is because it's interesting. I can't say exactly what it is, but it's the most interesting out of the word concept idea. My job is to somehow make them curious enough
1: or persuade them by hook or crook to get more aware of themselves and where they came from and what they are into and what is already there and just to bring it out. This is what compels me to compel them. And I will do it by whatever means, necessary. Love is where you find it, it's where you find it, it's hmm? where you find it, hmm? you find love hmm? is where you find it. And you don't know where it will carry you. And it is a terrifying thing, love. It is the only human possibility, but it's terrifying. Through the eyes of our ears, we see the beauty of hope. We see the beauty of pain. We see the beauty...